Hi, folks. On this episode of the Plug in America show, I chat with Plug in America's new program director, Dr. Eric Cahill, and we explore the auto dealer space as well as programs that will help auto dealers sell more EVs. Auto dealer programs are now an official focus for us here at Plug in America, and there's lots to discuss. But first, please consider signing up for the Plug in America newsletter. It's free or joining or donating to us by visiting pluginamerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. Also, please be sure to visit pluginamerica.org and click the Press Room and Plug in America show tabs for the show notes and links to this episode. everybody. Welcome to another Plug in America show. I'm your host, Bob Tregillis. Joining us today is Dr. Eric Cahill. Eric holds two graduate degrees from MIT and a degree in engineering from USC, and he recently earned a PhD in transportation technology and policy from UC Davis. In the real world, Eric was an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy, and he has worked in product development for GM, Boeing, and Quantum Technologies. And Plug in America is just elated to have Eric on board as our new program director. What a catch, eh? Welcome to the Plug in America show, Eric. Thank you for having me, Bob. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you're on board, especially with what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, kind of, well, I don't know, it's euf- euphemistically referred to as the dealer problem, but it is it's certainly a problem. Eric's PhD work, coincidentally, at UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies uh, was about the dealer issue and how we can better serve dealers so that they can uh, deal with this disruptive technology that we all refer to as EVs. So, Eric, uh, you've identified, of course, you've been doing a lot of some writing, a lot of little policy papers and things on this uh, on this topic and uh, have identified some problematic areas for dealers. As we know, like I said, it is a disruptive technology and it needs to be dealt with differently than ICE vehicles. Uh, could you name maybe a couple of uh, things that uh, are causing dealers headaches? Sure. There's several things. Uh, you know, I did as part of my work and the extended study through uh, monies that were provided to me by the California Energy Commission, I conducted extensive interviews uh, with stakeholders that interact with the retail chain, uh, as well as dozens of dealer principals, general managers, and, and sales staff. And almost, um, almost uniformly, uh, dealers, uh, first of all, indicated that, that plug-in buyers are more demanding of their time. Uh, so they take uh, plug-in vehicles take longer to sell as a result. Uh, in many cases, customers, because they're early adopters, you know, more affluent generally, uh, better educated of access to uh, pricing information and other uh, information that, uh, that makes it difficult for, for dealers to, to live up to those expectations. So they're often caught at a disadvantage relative to these uh, very knowledgeable customers who are coming in interested in buying a plug-in vehicle or, you know, first contacting the the dealership interested in purchasing or leasing a plug-in vehicle. So they're more complicated. 
They invite more demanding customers. They also can detract from sales of more profitable vehicles. I think it's no surprise that given the, the high price of these, uh, the initial or first generation of these vehicles, that uh, the margins are extremely thin for dealers. On top of that, early adopters typically have really good credit. So there's not a whole lot of opportunity for the dealer to make much, uh, you know, much of a spread on that dealer reserve, uh, you know, in the interest rate, and um, consequently, you know, a lot of salespeople are only making the mini, uh, what they call the mini deal. And usually, that's a hundred, maybe at most two hundred dollars uh, for the sale. So mm-hmm. it's not only taking them longer; uh, they're they're making less money. Uh, so that's that's a big part of the problem. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'll add one other thing, and that is that you know many of these dealers have never been behind the wheel of a plug-in vehicle before. <laughs> they have. It's it's only for brief periods, and it's not like when you're coming into, you know, if I'm a sales if I'm a salesperson in the car dealer business, and I go work for a different dealership, I go to work for a dealership, you know, and maybe I've never sold cars before, but I've driven a car. You know, I've driven a car ever since probably I was a teenager. So you know how it works. You go in with a lot of already kind of a base level of knowledge. With uh, with electric vehicles, they don't have that base level of knowledge. So there's a whole learning curve dynamic that needs to be um, needs to be climbed. Right. What about in, during your surveys of dealers and surveys you've read from other sources? Um, what about the service end? Uh, you know, the EVs requiring less service, as we know. Was that a concern they were expressing? Yeah. You know, even when I was doing these a few years ago, that was obviously raised as a big concern. Still, the data was at that time too early to tell. Uh, But since then, uh, it's become fairly clear that the sales and maintenance requirements, sorry, the uh, service and maintenance requirements on the vehicles are generally about, uh, the range I'm hearing is 20 to 30 percent lower in terms of uh, frequency or profit. Uh, on these on plug-in vehicles. Um, now, I don't have that broken out necessarily by whether that's a plug-in hybrid or a plug-in uh, electric, you know, all-electric vehicle. But um, but nevertheless, that's that's a main you know service and maintenance is a is is a, one of the profit centers. There's basically three big profit centers for dealers, and uh, that's used car sales, uh, service and maintenance, and um, finance and insurance and uh, Consequently, you know, any erosion of that profit center uh, is kind of a double whammy because, as, as noticed in those profit centers, it, I did not include uh, margins on new car sales. So those are those have been declining for a long time. So it's very thin margins. In fact, the margins on a new car are uh, right up there with uh, grocery stores. Mm, okay, so it's really tight. Yeah, in a couple of your papers here, you say, though, that the profits on new car sales between ICEs and EVs are quite similar. I guess just in one paper, you said marginally higher. Is that yeah. the case? Yeah, there's, um, that's just it. There's been a downward industry trend that's been ongoing for a long time on new cars, and this is much the result of the emergence of online commerce uh, and the transparency of prices. And we've seen more and more of that and more and more people get access uh, online. And consequently, more and more people uh, are able to see right through what the invoice price is of a vehicle. And that has eroded margins on new cars for some time. So that's just the downward pressure that's been occurring throughout the industry. Electric vehicles, you know, so, so in that sense, electric vehicles aren't necessarily all that much worse. They're, they're just as bad. 
Okay. Well, can these problems with these lower margins on new car sales be addressed with streamlining the sales process? Because as we know, that's really cumbersome under the old dealership model. Well, let me ask you this. What's cumbersome? What do you find cumbersome about it? Well, the price haggling stuff, it's like they go, you tell them one price and then they walk back to talk to the supervisor, but they're talking about where they're going to go have lunch or something. And then they come out and counter offer. And it's like, it just seems like it's an endless thing. And it's also something that could be streamlined where if we look at the Tesla model or, you know, the Apple computer model that Tesla pretty much copied, uh, where you can just purchase your car online and go down and pick it up. And then that would offset the losses from that they might see over the life of the car in the service department as right. well. What, well, speak that, on that topic a bit. Yeah, sure. It's a, that's a bit of a leap. But what I, I certainly appreciate the kernel of what you're saying. Uh, you know, the data that, you know, we crunched, first of all, revealed that, you know, the average transaction time when doing a deal at a dealership is about four hours. So, and there's, so that's a lot of time. I mean, to, to spend actually at the retail facility. Uh, now, that, is that what, would that be man hours? I mean, actual, cause the, the salesman's got to write up all the stuff and then, but then there's back office stuff that has to yeah, happen. Just what the, what the customer reported as how long, how much okay. time they spent at the dealership. So there's a lot of overhead then also behind the scenes and selling the well, cars yeah. too. Okay. Yeah, but this is, as I said, you know, endemic to the selling cars at large. Right. And, okay. you know, it, it would benefit, I think, the industry, and the industry is slowly moving toward a more streamlined model that has been introduced by some of the larger auto groups. Sonic, for example, uh, is doing uh, work like this. Auto Nation is another one that's embarked on uh, a number of innovative ways to streamline the process and, and use the online component not only for informational purposes but also for transactional purposes as well. The The issue here is that it takes a long time. There's over 17,000 independently owned and operated dealerships, franchise dealerships in the U.S. Those big dealer groups only represent a small percent of that. Probably, I believe it's around three or four percent, maybe five percent. It's growing. Consolidation in the industry is growing. But nevertheless, for those innovations to percolate, taken up by the rest of the dealer body, it's going to take many, many years. In the meantime, we've got vehicles to sell. You know, mm-hmm. we have vehicles that are arguably not receiving the justice that they need to receive in order to be sold more effectively. Uh, so one of the big findings uh, in the work, in the study that I did, is that uh, consumers are greatly more dissatisfied with plug-in vehicles, with their, with their purchase experience, mm-hmm. uh, with dealers, than they are with, with conventional vehicles. So uh, that's a big discrepancy that, was, uh, that is systematic. It was you know, statistically significant. At the same time, customer loyalty to the dealer and to the uh, to the manufacturer also paid a pretty hefty penalty even when we compare Tesla against just the luxury market makes so those are telling um, Tesla for example its average retail uh, you know time reported by the customer in the retail environment was only about two hours about half what it typically is. Uh, for a dealer customer. And granted, there are a lot of things that dealers could emulate that Tesla's doing uh, with regard to plug-in vehicles. And I think there's a lot 
there in terms of uh, the Apple model mm-hmm. and why Tesla has embraced it uh, for selling plug-in vehicles. And it's and the reason for their higher scores is not just because that the Tesla Model S is their only model or that EVs are their only vehicles, even though that certainly is a major uh, contributor. It's also important the fact that they're doing things very differently uh, with these right. cars than a dealer would do with a conventional car. But as we know, the dealer lobbies of the you know for the independent dealers within the various state legislatures are they're actually making it more cumbersome to for the dealers to change their business model. I, I saw in one of your papers. I don't know if that quite accurately reflects it. What I would say is. Yes. I mean, dealers are the, the dealer associations are working to protect the franchise system, if you will, or the franchise model. And that is just that, that's one of the pillars that one of the causes that they are that they are champion. Unfortunately, Tesla represents Tesla's business model represents, you know, a, uh, yeah, a, I guess a, a threat. Um, I think wrongly so. Uh, but that's my humble opinion. And I, I do know that some dealers actually feel fairly strongly that Tesla is doing things um, very in a very innovative way and uh, support Tesla's business model. But if you talk to dealer associations, uh, you often you know have more of a bit more of a potentially a fortress mentality with the idea that Tesla, could be widely embraced. There's big concerns that say if the Chinese come and try to sell cars here under the uh, a similar model to Tesla, then that could up upend the franchise system. So it is kind of viewed as an existential threat by a number of dealer association you know, leaders. So I think the important thing that I want to see taking taken away, and that's I think Plug in America can play a can play a leading role in, is that this isn't really an us or them type of battle, but rather there's stuff here for everyone to learn and to embrace that will benefit customers regardless of the system that you're using. You know, the automakers, the automakers tied their hitch, I guess, uh, hitched their wagon to the franchise model decades ago. And that has been fortified by state laws over the many decades since. And to a certain degree, that really has kind of locked in the automakers to a model that maybe not that may not be as flexible as it needs to be to accommodate a technology that is as disruptive as an electric vehicle. And um, you know, and and Bob, one thing I wanted to jump right into uh, when you started this this conversation is the the word disruptive and how often disrupt what the what disruptive means is very different depending on who you ask i noticed you didn't use it or i haven't seen it yet in any of the policy papers and stuff you sent yeah. forwarded to me so tell me about that <laughs> yeah and the reason for that is because disruptions you know bandied about in the media very often and, and used very loosely often incorrectly you know there's an academic sense of the term uh, and anybody who has read any of clay christensen work uh, from Harvard Business School, uh, you know, the crossing, I'm sorry, um, what was it called? The Innovator's Dilemma or any of his uh, innovation books. Uh, you know, that, that characterizes disruption very specifically and narrowly 
as uh, typically a low-end type of disruption, as he calls it, where you come in with a simpler, cheaper product that serves an underserved market, and you kind of work up up market, if you will, over time. And usually big companies, it happens at such a rate that often the dominant comp- companies um, don't react too fast enough until uh, essentially their whole their whole business model is in jeopardy, right? So that's that's disruption in the classical sense. Uh, and frankly, uh, this was this question about electric vehicles, even though it was used as an example in in his book, um, and it's used as an example in other innovation texts um, as a disruptive innovation. Ever since then, his his team came back and said, no, electric vehicles are not disruptive, uh, according to his very narrow rubric. And that's absolutely right. Uh, if you look at Christensen's narrow rubric for what uh, a disruptive innovation is, an electric vehicle doesn't fit that. Uh, it's not low end, uh, first of all. You know, these are vehicles that are, are not cheaper. Uh, so... And they're coming into a mainstream uh, a mainstream market here. So there's a number of different reasons why that's that's not the case. So then, is there a catch-all term that you prefer? Well, I, in a way, I I would argue this. I think I think disruption needs to be taken back uh, from the academics to a certain degree here, and uh, you know because I think there is far more to it than we understand, uh, than the academics understand and the researchers understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's okay to talk about things that are disruptive. I mean, we know that new change, that first of all, change is disruptive. And electric vehicles change a couple of fundamental things. Uh, One of them is that they require a change in consumer behavior. You know, people are not used to uh, fueling their cars with electricity. Uh, they're not used to handling uh, industrial size uh, charging equipment. Uh, they're not used to charging electrical things in the rain. Um, you know, they're not used to not using gas stations and say charging in your garage. There's a lot of things that are unfamiliar to customers and that require a change in customer behavior. That's that's more of a significant step change than might come from, say, you know, the more incremental improvements in, a, in, in the conventional vehicles we all know and love, uh, you know, because of, say, uh, Bluetooth or telematics or, you know, GPS. Right. So that's, that's the one big thing that's different. The other big thing that's different, and this is fundamental, is that we don't have a fully developed infrastructure. In fact, we have a very underdeveloped uh, charging infrastructure or fueling infrastructure, if you will, for electric vehicles. And those are two big pieces. There's also, and when I say infrastructure, we're not just talking about charging and the fueling infrastructure, but we're also talking about the institutional infrastructure, laws, codes, statutes <laughs> that need to all come into being to contend with the fact that people are now using electricity to power their cars. And those things are vastly underdeveloped. Uh, so it, those are the big differences that really do require a different approach than, say, dealers under the franchise system have traditionally used. And that makes that should make a lot of sense to people. I mean, auto, auto dealers have not had to train people how to fuel their cars for many, many, many decades. Right. 
so the, this is therefore disrupting their operations because now the customer needs much more hand-holding than they've ed- ever had to give in the past. Right. Well, and then, of course, maybe a replacement word, since disruptive kind of highlights the negative, perhaps we should be talking about opportunities, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So there's, uh, there's certainly a lot of opportunities uh, with electric vehicles, as we all know of the, the public benefits of them in terms of uh, cleaner, you know, certainly to breathe for public health, for greenhouse gas emissions, quietness, which can be bad also. We've certainly seen that issue with, um, you know, at low speeds uh, in terms of pedestrian concerns over pedestrians, you know, the, um, and the dis- disadvantage of disabled. So, um, you know, everything's got its pluses and minuses, but electric vehicles obviously have a, have a lot going for them in the sense of being far more efficient, far more uh, cost-effective, far more convenient in a number of respects presuming that the customer got the wherewithal uh, and fits the technology. Right. But kind of swinging it back to the dealers and their view of the EV space. Well, of course, here's an opportunity for the dealers and marketing their businesses would be that uh, they're embracing new technologies and shows them, you know, being modern and ahead of the game, so to speak. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think when it comes to the dealer body, uh, it's much like the body of consumers, right? Not everybody rushes out to buy the, the newest iPhone, despite what you hear reported in the media. Uh, it's, you know, customers are very different from one to the next, different profiles. And some are, you know, want to be first on the block to own the latest technology. Some have to be dragged screaming and kicking. Uh, to to the technology, uh, you know, and will hold on to their rotary dial phones as long as they can or their typewriters as long as they can until, you know, somebody makes them. But the dealers are similar in that sense. You know, they, they are a very diverse body of business owners. And consequently, you have the same, I think, demographic diversity as well, you know, all the way to the tech savvy, forward, you know, leading edge type of uh, individuals or early adopter dealers, if you will, all the way to the laggard or Luddite type of, of dealers who, you know, won't sell an EV until hell freezes over. Right. So let's start drilling down a little bit here about how we can uh, show dealers there are benefits to being forward and, and marketing their EVs rather than kind of pushing them off into the corner somewhere, not paying attention to them. As we know, uh, policymakers, of course, they're another piece of this puzzle and, and yeah. their understanding is as lacking as many dealers and as most consumers, except, you know, with the exception of those who know about EVs and drive them. But policy, you know, has been focused on you know, from the federal and state uh, has been focused on manufacturers and consumers and not on the dealers. So let's try and ferret out, you know, what sure. would be some policies that would help the dealers that could be crafted by our policymakers, both state and federal? Well, you know, when it comes to something like the dealers, I, I tend to take a very guarded approach when we talk about incentives. Incentives uh, can, are dual-edged sword. They can be great in the short term. They, however, can be, they, they can really erode trust in the long term. And you'll notice that this is one of the reasons that Tesla embraced a commissionless sales process. And the reason that they're using salaried employees to act as a 
customer advisors rather than commissioned salespeople in the traditional sense. So we have to be real careful when we start start talking about incentives for dealers. And First of all, let me interrupt you there too. Yeah. Just the uncertainty part too of the incentives is a big negative. Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> now I'm not saying that there isn't a role for incentives. Again, you know, it depends. Are we starting from a blank, blank slate in the sense that Tesla did, or are we starting from the system that has been in place and is in place now and probably will be for many, many more years because we can't start with a blank slate in that case. So we have to work with in the system, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and that can make things things challenging. First of all, mm-hmm. the automakers already incent their dealers. They have monetary incentives, what they call spins and spiffs, which uh, essentially are, are bonuses every time a dealer sells uh, a unit or a particular unit of car, including a running count. So, um, hmm. does, you know, does that vary vary between Zev states and non Zev states? Do you know? I don't think it's a Zev non Zev state thing. Uh, okay. At least cars in general. Um, okay. I do think I think what you're asking though is for plug-in vehicles. Does that different? Mm-hmm. Is there a different Zev and non-Zev states? Yeah, I'm sure that there is. Um, the automakers who uh, have to meet the the Zev uh, mandate, Zev requirements, are not surprisingly going to focus their resources and the money spend on those states that are requiring it. So there has been an emphasis on California. Uh, first of all, because California uh, actually is a is a uh, can, uh, kind of a rich seedbed, if you will, for for this market, being number one uh, that the weather is as good as it is here by and large, uh, so it's very favorable to the technology itself and some of its initial weaknesses, if you will, in terms of the of the battery capability uh, here in our first you know the first generation of product. But it's also got a more I think car dependent culture, also a more, I think, pro-environment culture. And consequently, California makes a lot of sense for them to to focus and grow the market initially and to learn, start coming up the learning curve. The other Zev states uh, don't share a lot of those characteristics. And mm-hmm. consequently, the automakers are taking, I think, a much more conservative, guarded approach. Uh, they want to protect the brand. They don't want to, if they're required or forced, as they might think, to uh, to sell an electric vehicle in you know Maine or even Massachusetts or any name other in any other state in the Northeast in terms of the winters that they contend with you know that the last thing an automaker is going to want is upset customers who either don't come back to who don't come back to the brand uh, and dealers don't want an upset customer who's not going to come back to their to their showroom or to their service center right and to remind listeners we kind of jumped on that acronym ZEV and ZEV, non-ZEV states. Um, zero emissions vehicle mandate from uh, California was adopted by, what, about a dozen states, is it? Do you know? Um, yeah, that's really, it's roughly 10 states that have okay. uh, embraced California's uh, zero emission vehicle mandate rules. Which requires manufacturers to produce a certain amount of zero emissions vehicles and sell them annually to that's continue right. selling cars in those states. Well, let's go back to their ways to incent because I didn't, I didn't, yeah, you know, didn't know about well, manufacturers giving dealers go well sell some of these cars here and we'll give you a yeah. couple extra bucks or something. I didn't know they yeah. they did that, so that's so interesting. In some cases, in some <laughs> cases, it can amount to some fairly substantial chunks right. of change. I know at times Nissan dealers were making a thousand dollars on the sale of a plug-in vehicle, and oh. sometimes more than that. Same with uh, Chevy dealers and, and others. 
Okay. The problem with these incentives is that they they tend to wax and wane, right? They come mm-hmm. and they go. It just depends whether it's the end of the model year and they're trying to offload inventory, or the end of the uh, you know the fiscal or the calendar year and they're trying to capture Zev credits. So those things create uncertainty in the market, and um, this is where I think an incentive. Uh, from, say, a public source like uh, the government or even better, potentially, from the utilities, uh, that uh, that mm. would provide a baseline and consistent price signal to the dealerships, regardless of uh, special promotion periods. That And that's often often lacking. Yeah, that's interesting. From the utilities, could you uh, expound upon that a little bit? So some several utilities actually are are experimenting with this. I know that the state of Connecticut is is doing has one of their own that's publicly you know state funded, but uh, here in California there have been filings to the Public Utilities Commission to create an incentive for dealers using either some of the uh, the climate exchange funds or the low carbon fuel standard funds um, that are available. And the way that would work is that you know essentially. Uh, utilities earn uh, renewable credits, and mm. those credits can be monetized and then rebated back to the customer in the form of a check or a credit. Mm. So that can be used by dealers to encourage adoption. It can also be used by customers to do the same. Right. Um, yeah, and I mentioned, I'm sorry, that utility to just if the utility. Uh, utilities can rebate that back to the customer. They can also create a, a dealer incentive as well. Uh, hmm. That can be, um, you know, act as cash on the hood for the dealer. That could either go to the customer or to the dealer. Right. Well, and then also I've been a big advocate for years for actually having a dealer incentive, I think would be important. Unless, you know, especially, well, not only that would be kind of split between, the dealer ownership as well as the salesperson because the salesperson's got to go through all these extra steps. They got to first learn about the technology and then go through these extra steps to explain it, which can take sure. a lot longer to explain to a consumer. Of course, you've um, talked about in some of your policy papers here about having more information available in electronic form, which, you know, that would be an incentive as well, considered an incentive, yep. <laughs> puts together those databases and maintains well, one of the big, and so one forth. Of the, one of the big problems, Bob, is that, uh, you know, the, the industry at large uh, suffers from high sales force turnover. On the wow. order of, I believe, IDA reported it was this last year, it was 80%. Wow. So uh, you think about that, the entire, you're essentially changing over your entire floor sales force in just a bit over a year. So uh, where, where are these guys going? Are they like running to other dealers because suddenly Ford pickups are more popular than Chevy pickups or something? Or That's, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, either that or, you know, if you recall the, the, the mortgage boom, you know, back in the early 2000s, many of them left the industry to go sell you know, mortgages. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are, oh. these are basically, you know, roving salespeople, if you will. They go to where the money is. Right. So, and as uh, you mentioned, Connecticut had, does have a little bit of a dealer incentive, and I do plan to get a hold of somebody in Connecticut so that I can interview, interview them on that and get some data and see how that's been working out. There's another thing. Um, uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, way back in 2008, they held what they called the Smart Garage 
Charette, which I was very excited about and followed very closely. Uh, Smart Garage is kind of a metaphor for where buildings uh, with renewable energy capacity, I like to say, add on to it. So it's, it's, but anyway, Smart Garage is where buildings, the electric grid, and transportation meet, you know, because yeah. we're now plugging in our cars. And in that, uh, in one of the things, ideas that came out of that was doing a concierge type service where, you know, maybe this is a role where Plug In America could fill, where our experts could. If somebody was interested, say, in a Nissan Leaf, the local Nissan dealer would have a list of people that could advise the customer, here, contact Joe over here. He knows all about, you know, he's been driving a Leaf for five years and he's part of this group, Plug In America and stuff. Have you, has that crossed your? Certainly. Uh, I think you're, you're getting to the rub of things, which I think there really is a leadership role to be played by a trusted third party nonprofit like Plug-in America, who represents the voice of the plug-in customer nationally. So this is a big part, trust is a big part of, uh, and it's really at the heart of this issue. There was a, a focus group that was aired live during the electric vehicle, uh, what's it called, EVRM9. What's it, I can't remember the name of the, uh, it's a conference, EVRM conference in Portland. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they the moderator asked the, the panelists, um, what uh, you know? Who do you trust more? And then he gives a list. Uh, and interestingly, the environmental and nonprofit groups were ranked on the high end of that that list of trust. What was not on the high end of that trust were dealerships. Hmm. So, how we engage customers is important. And I do believe that there is a role for a trusted third party like Plug in America to provide expertise and information to customers interested in plugging a, you know, in, in a plug-in vehicle. And that is what our initiative is really focusing on, and that is taking, taking the extra steps to, to inform customers in a way that they are familiar with and they're comfortable with, and then teeing them up for the sale. So that by the time they land at the dealership, the dealer doesn't necessarily have to do all that much more work. The customer has all the information they need. They've had the questions answered. They know what to do as far as which chart, you know, if they need a level two charger, which one they're going to get, making sure that their residence is equipped to handle it and that kind of thing, such that they show up at the dealership. All that needs to be done is we can actually transact a sale. Right. So it takes a lot of that uncertainty off the customer, off the dealer, and and actually help speed the sale or close the sale, which is something dealers would love. Right. Well, Eric, I know you need to run here in a couple of minutes. Do you have any closing thoughts or we'll continue this conversation later? It sounds like things are going to be evolving over the coming months and years. Yeah, things. this is going to be really interesting. We're just at the, at the beginning here, really, as right. we shape the program and we bring on our stakeholders. Uh, I think we're going to have a really interesting mix uh, and an interesting solution in both the San Diego and Boston markets. And we'll be collecting data and we'll be able to look back hopefully on this and be able to point to some success. I'm sure there'll be some lessons that we'll learn that we can hone the next time, uh, the next go round. But, uh, you know, I think this is, this is a evolving area that should be front and center of our efforts to commercialize these vehicles and to gain broader adoption across the country. Okay. Well, that was a great conclusion, but you 
my ears perked up. So what do we've got a little pilot program going on or something? We do. Oh. Yeah, we have uh, we have a pilot uh, that's funded by San Diego Gas and Electric in San Diego that launches uh, in March of this year. Oh. We have funding from the Department of Energy uh, to launch a similar program in the greater Boston metro area. Oh, okay. later. I heard about that one. Okay, yep. yeah. later okay. this year. So we have a couple couple pilot markets that we're going to test. Uh, outstanding. Well, thank you so much, Eric. You bet. Happy to talk. Thanks, Bob. This has been another edition of the Plug in America show. Thanks so much for listening. And please help us get the word out about Plug in America and EVs by pointing your friends and family to the Plug in America website at pluginamerica.org. There you'll find a wealth of information about EVs, our plug-in vehicle tracker that tells you what EVs are available, what's coming and when, a blog, information about EV chargers and public charging, multimedia content, promotional materials, and much more. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us there. If you'd like to find out more about me, my name is Bob Tregillis, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And please remember, Plug in America is a non-profit electric vehicle advocacy group, and our work is supported by your generous donations. Please consider donating by visiting pluginamerica.org today, and we appreciate your kind support. Thanks to Anglegord, whose music was used here by permission. And until next time, remember, at Plug in America, we drive electric, and you can too.